welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. I'm Ryan Bates. And I'm Ben Golke. And we are here today to talk about becoming a software developer, which, to be fair, we talk about basically every time. But it occurred to us this time that there are many different kinds of software developers, Ben. Yeah, it turns out we haven't talked about this, which is kind of shocking that we're on uh, in the middle of season two and we haven't discussed this yet. But I was shocked. We thought... Yeah, we thought it would be a good idea. After seeing that we definitely haven't talked about it yet, we did check um, in this particular way. We thought it'd be fun to discuss the different kinds of developer that you can be and maybe help give you a framework uh, to use to decide, right? Because there's so many choices. How do you make how do you make a choice, right? You could, I guess, look at the languages. You could look at the 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 ways in which you uh, you write the code. Um, but we're going to try and sort of attack it from a few different angles and give you a, a framework that you can use to hopefully help you decide uh, what kind of programmer you would like to be if you don't know that, right? Especially if you're new to this, it's going to be difficult to choose because you might not know what the choices are. Yeah, you might know what the choices are. The, the choices might all seem the same because they're because they're all foreign to you. Um, so we want to try and give you some uh, some touch points that you can use to uh, to hopefully understand them a little bit. Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to get uh, in <laughs> into any real depth here in this one episode, but just give you kind of a a couple different ways to think about it so you can try and choose. And I think I'd like to preface this by saying that we've agreed that this is not a career-defining choice. It's an important choice because you have to start out learning something, but you can change your mind later, and that's fine, right? Of course, yeah. I don't think probably any of the uh, certainly I haven't. I don't think you, Brian, nope. and, and like some, somebody like my dad, who's been in the business for over thirty years. Um, you know, whether you're relatively new or or you've been in the industry for a long time. The, I think the one universal truth is that you're never going to work on something forever. I mean, it's 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 very rare that that uh, you'll end up starting your career working on a technology and ending it working on that exact same technology. Uh, even the technology itself uh, might change. So even if you are a JavaScript developer for your entire career, let's say JavaScript as a a language and as a as a platform is is not going to remain static. It's it's going to continue to change. So. Even if you even if you don't stray super far away from where you began, the technology under your feet will change, and so that's why what we're what we're saying about this is that uh, you know if you pick something here and you get into it and you decide maybe you, it turns out this is not your favorite thing, or it grows into something that is no longer your favorite thing. Exactly. Um, then in that case, don't don't despair because you can always uh, take these these ideas and these concepts and these skills, and you can transfer them to other portions of the technology world it's not that you need to kind of stay exactly in your lane um i, I certainly haven't and i don't think you have either Neither have I. Nope. We, we have to be kind of a little bit of a swiss army knife right and be able to adapt to the to changing landscape so having said that it is a, a decision that you have to make and uh, let's start out by talking about some of the factors that might drive you to make one decision over another so the first thing probably we should talk about is what kinds of things that you might like, right? Why don't we start out with just a, a plain, what do you like question, which is, um, can kind of, I think maybe help, uh, get you clued into maybe sort of a, a genre of programming, right? So we could, we could think about programming in, in, if we think about it in really big kind of, uh, big groups, we can think of things like web programming, uh, and there's various flavors in, in there. We can think about mobile programming, right? Mobile programming, there's desktop programming, right? Building applications for computers, right? Regular computers, laptops, and desktops. Um, there is uh, there is sort of 
cloud focused computing, which is is kind of this interesting combination of of uh, sort of server programming and and also maybe even like front end programming, and it's 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 and it it, may, it might sit on one computer or it might sit on it might actually be it might span across multiple computers in in a in a server uh, farm. So it's also kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um, but there's various ways in which you can categorize, I guess, programming. Uh, and maybe a first good step would be to try to understand what kinds of problems do you like to solve? Because they all have different uh, different problem space, um, web versus mobile versus desktop versus whatever. And they also all have different um, limitations, right? Like, for example, just to, to give an example, mobile programming is very much focused on trying to create a solution that can work uh, in conjunction with resources from the web, right? So from the internet, talking to the internet and getting data from APIs and stuff like that, but also being able to run completely self-contained, right? So the on, on mobile, you're not going to necessarily have internet at all in all locations. And the, the, you know, by definition, the computer is mobile. It's going to be moved around frequently by the user. So you have to be able to have the app work even in the absence of any outside resources. Um, and that's something that is not unique to mobile programming, but is is kind of an interesting uh, problem to deal with. Um, and that's one of the that kind of it f- sort of f- forms the the way in which you think about building solutions, right? You have they have to be almost like a submarine where they can they can communicate <laughs> with the outside, but they also have to be able to run silent and deep, right? You have to be able to run <laughs> you have to be able to run all by yourself. Never as heard well. that comparison before. And, and have I just made it up? And have um, you know, and have a, a self-contained solution uh, that can run in the absence of any other outside uh, resources. So just as an example. And I think a, another angle on that is to uh, just ask yourself, what do you enjoy interacting with the most? Are you Do you spend most of your time on the internet, maybe on a laptop? Do you like a particular set of apps? If you go the app route, are you uh, an iPhone person or an Android person? Because you'll have to learn very different things for each of those three uh, uh, regimes, I guess you might say. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you definitely need to be able to be a user of the... Generally speaking, if you are a user of the platform that you build for, that's going to make you a better programmer. Because if you are an, uh, you know, if you're an avid user of Android, you will understand the concerns and needs of people who use Android, right? Which you need to be able to know what your user is thinking and 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 how they what they expect, I guess, out of your out of your application. Um, that is as a very useful um, you know piece of information to have when you're designing and building an application, whether that be a web app or a mobile app or whatever. Um, so, if for example you're really into Android, you're really into iOS, and you have an Android phone or an iPhone. Um, and you actively use apps on those platforms, that will really help you uh, because when you get into learning how to program that platform, there's the language itself, but there's also what is expected, right? What is is the standard use case for a given control or button or interface in that platform? And if you have that knowledge already, then it's one less thing you have to learn and it'll also make your apps better, right? So if you're all about being, you know, if if your day is focused on sort of uh, getting information from a web browser and interacting with websites and web applications, maybe that's going to be the best choice for you. Maybe it won't, but that's one of the criteria you could use to help kind of filter 
um, filter things into the into the yes list, right, of, of stuff that I might want to study. Yeah, I think it'll make you better at doing it. And also, you'll have more fun doing it, which is kind of a virtuous cycle that you'll, the more you enjoy something, the more you'll do it, and the better you'll get at it, and then the more fun you'll have. So if you're, if you're really focused on iPhones and playing around with your iPhone and you get locked into, I think probably Android would be a bigger jump than web, which is in some ways intermediate because you can get to the web on either mobile device plus desktop uh, or laptop, then if you have to spend your time you know, making your paycheck writing for a platform that you would never voluntarily use, then that's just kind of a drag. So maybe don't do that to yourself if you can avoid it. Yeah, it's it's definitely the case that you want to, um, you know, pick something that you think you will be decently good at, but also it's important that you pick something that you will have fun at doing, right? Because while while I will say that, um, you know, no job is going to be all fun and games all the time, and that's that's a something to be expected. It is the case that you want to be. Uh, reasonably entertained by the things that you're doing, um, because, like you said, it's a virtuous cycle. If you if you find the challenge interesting and fun, uh, that means when the challenge gets really tough, you Just have a little bit more of an ins- yeah, a little more incentive and motivation to actually want to see it through. Whereas if you don't really care about the challenge then when the challenge gets hard, it's just going to be much easier for you to say, you know, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, so having uh, both interest and um, uh, interest in it and also kind of getting some kind of level of satisfaction out of doing it is important, which is why really, I think why we're doing this episode at all, right. Is, is like we said, you're not going to have, you're not going to necessarily have to do this exact thing for the rest of your career. So don't despair if it's not great, but at the same time, uh, learning it, learning this stuff is very difficult and, um, you want to pick something that you're going to have fun at and that you think you'll be able to, to gain wins in, um, and and uh, and it, even if you can gain a win in learning some piece of technology, if you get no satisfaction from that win, it's hard to want to do the next challenge, right? So being able to to both enjoy something and uh, make progress in it is important. Yeah, that's a really good point. If your win is something like I shaved. 10 milliseconds off of the load time for whatever um, API call I'm making, but all I care about is what it looks like, well, then that's not very motivating. Or if your win is I, I picked colors that are not only accessible, but really communicate the brand well, but you're more of a, a, a data kind of a person, well, then that feels sort of tepid and, and uninteresting. Yeah, it's 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 definitely the case that you know some one person's win can feel like a meh, you know. Yeah. Other people. Yeah. So so it's good to to make sure that you understand uh, where you get your um, motivation from, right? Uh, so maybe some part of this is going to be checking out these different things and maybe doing a tutorial or two on on each of them. I, what I what I would also recommend that everyone do if you're just starting out is is explore, right? Take take these ideas that we're giving in this episode and and try out these different things and see see how they feel for you. If they if they feel like fun, then and challenging and engaging and interesting, then maybe that's something you could explore. Um, and if they don't, then that's its own signal, right? That's its own signal to tell you that perhaps this is not going to be 
the the best uh, the best choice for you. Right. Now, so far we've talked mainly in kind of one dimension: the what device do you want to interact with, and that might point you towards if you like iPhones, that would be a clue to direct yourself towards some Swift tutorials. If you like Android, possibly I think Kotlin is the hot thing. I there were some other before, but I think Kotlin is the way to go right now. Uh, Java is what they used to use, they um, and they use. still do. But Kotlin is kind of the new, the new hot uh, thing on the on the scene for Android. For Android, and then for web, if you want to again interact with the, the kind of user facing stuff that happens in the browser, then combination of HTML and CSS and JavaScript, which is sort of a mouthful compared to the other options, but there you have it. Uh, but then there are other dimensions because those things, each of the I guess five technologies I've talked about, are for things that happen. Uh, to use Ben's analogy, while the submarine is underwater and it's not in communication with anything else. But then there's also communication between whatever device you have, whether it's a phone or a browser and a computer, and some other computers far away. Yeah, there's a whole nother, um, whole nother section of programming, which is really all about getting computers to talk to each other. So backends, an API, if you've, if you've probably heard the term API before, that means application programming interface. And the point of that term is to convey the idea that an API is something that provides a communication channel from one computer to another. So it might be a web API. It might be where there's a server on the web that's on the, that's on the internet that is publicly accessible and that you as a, another computer, a mobile device, a web browser, whatever, can communicate with that API and that server and get information from it. Um, but API does not just mean talking to something on the internet. It is actually just in any case where two computers are communicating with each other uh, directly and there's no user in between. So user interface, right, like a, an iOS screen or a web page or whatever, is a way for a human and a computer to interact. In the case of an API, that's where two computers are going to talk to each other directly. And that's a whole other section, uh, genre of computer programming. Um, and so there's web APIs, there's, uh, there's API programming that happens locally on the computer. Um, so maybe it is a, a piece of software that runs on the computer that talks to, the, to a database and delivers information to a front end and it's a separate, a separate application or a separate uh, sort of service. Uh, there's various ways in which you can write um, software uh, to, to have two computers communicate. And that is really a whole different way of thinking about programming because in, in many cases, there is no what we call user interface. There's no like buttons and, and screens and labels and stuff like that that's going to convey information to a human. It is a matter of how do I create an efficient communication path for the computer that I'm programming to talk to other computers? Um, and that is, it's less visual and more, uh, more algorithmic, more, uh, more math, potentially math focused, depending on what you're doing. Um, and abstract uh, might just, be a word to throw in there. Yeah. Yeah. Abstract is a good way to describe that. So, uh, that is not for everyone, of course, just like front end is not for everyone. Uh, but it's, it's a good way to filter yourself, um, on these different ideas. And if that kind of, uh, idea of, of, of efficiently creating a communication path for one computer to talk to another, if that is something that excites you or interests you, then maybe that's the way to go. Right. So there are uh, probably what, at least dozens of ways to build a web web API um, with yeah, whole yeah. different kinds of languages and stuff. So maybe one um, unifying feature for a lot of them, if you want to get sort of the, the far reaches of the back end, would be to pick up something like SQL, which is a way uh, a language to talk directly to data and do stuff like uh, pick 
all of the items out of the store that are for sale that are less than $20 and also can be shipped to this location within two days and, you know, do that kind of um, almost spreadsheet sort of manipulation. Yeah, but rather than, you know, you clicking a mouse and moving columns around, you can do that with code, which is really cool. Is, is, is SQL is structured query language? Is that, yes, do I have that right? that's right. So the idea is basically like Brian just said, right? Getting answers from a database uh, where you can sort of slice and dice and mix and match the database, the data that you're talking to uh, so that you can get very specific and interesting answers to questions that you might have. That is really kind of if you've heard about, you know, um, machine learning and stuff like that at its at its most basic, that is really what we're talking about, which is using getting this huge data set and uh, that is just a bunch of sort of probably to us, if we were to look at it, basically unrelated gibberish, right? It's just like this huge, wide collection of data, but the database and things like SQL can allow you to uh, make connections in that data that may not be obvious by just looking at it as just a raw, a raw data set um, and allow you to answer these really interesting questions about the the set of data that you've got. Yeah, um, one aspect of machine learning, right? I mean, there's a, a of whole course, bunch one. of other stuff that goes into yes, it. Yes, of course. Basically, the idea that you you have this big pile of data that you can use to uh, to ask questions and get answers, and how much more right. work goes into it depends on how complicated the questions are, I guess. Right, and it sort of I think like at its most basic uh, idea, something like SQL allows you to do that, um, where you can you can create a query, you can create a, a question in SQL um, that can uh, that can answer a, a pretty complicated question. Um, that's actually what my dad does. That's his, that's mostly his job is is uh, as a database administrator is helping the programmers on the team that write the front end, that write the the Java application to be able to ask those questions from the application. Uh, the you know the the user interface the, they can collect data from the user about something they want an answer to they can form a a question and then they can ask the database and what my dad's job is to sort of help those prog programmers understand how to ask those questions properly um, so that the database can for one provide the right answer and also so they don't ruin <laughs> the relationships and the data itself inside the database inadvertently because you can you can sort of screw things up if you, up, yeah. if you you do do it the wrong way so that's his primary job is to kind of assist and help uh and manage the whole database and the programmers that interface with it um so as an example he clearly has a back-end job that's that's his job he doesn't really deal with the interface that talks to the humans uh the users of the application so much he's kind of uh both in the back end and almost kind of like in the middle layer where uh he's helping the programmers who do program the front end to ask the right questions. So that's an example of something that you could do. That that's that's a job that you can have. You can be a programmer and your your job is to uh, to facilitate talking to uh, large data sets. Nothing to do with iOS or Android or or the web or any other kind of programming. It's 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 a whole different facet of programming and it, I think it's it's uh, something that um, a lot of times juniors who are first getting into this maybe don't realize like we said, maybe you don't realize all the choices that you right. could possibly make. Because the most obvious thing is the device that you've been interacting with, and you pr probably have a vague sense that there's more things that go on off in the cloud, I think is kind of the generic term for, I don't know exactly what happens or where it happens. But as you get into it, you start to understand a, a bit more. And there are still things that I have to say, well, that happens in the cloud, meaning I don't really know what's going on myself. But for things like database interaction, that's one level that, uh, like Ben said, is not necessarily tied to 
any particular device, but can be made to interact with the different devices. So if you want to uh, facilitate different kinds of processes on your phones or on your computers, but you don't want to get into all of the user interface -y kind of decisions around uh, how should this thing look, you know, fonts and colors and, and uh, how should the screens be connected together and a lot of stuff that goes into more user interface kind of kind of questions. Maybe you're more interested in the abstractions of how should this data be uh, connected to itself? What groupings can I make and how can I efficiently uh, ask questions of it to get answers? Yeah, data modeling is certainly something that is it's a it's a fascinating part of of writing good software, um, and it's a very it's critically important part. I feel like data modeling is just as important, um, if not even more so, than the interface, or at least it's something that probably should happen earlier because and it's longer lived, right? The data can yeah. live for a very long time, and the interface can change, right? It can it, you can your, the needs that you have or that your users have can change, and and that facilitates a, a change of the interface. But the the data modeling decisions that you make can be they can live they can live the entire life of the application itself of of you know and and they can, sometimes can even not often but sometimes they can even be sort of a one-way decision where you make that choice and it's like well this is how it is for into it yeah so it's a it's a very critical uh job right to, to be able to do that well and it's something that is is can be a very highly valued uh you know um uh, task on the team to complete um and if that's something that excites you then i would definitely explore that some as an as an option. So to kind of move on to the next uh, the next idea, the way the next way we can kind of think about this is um, we we have in here: Are you a math person? And I think what we mean by that is basically: um, Are you data driven? Are you are you math driven? Do you really enjoy computation um, and and solving those kinds of problems? Perhaps that is a way that you can kind of think about uh, both. Uh, software and and your role in it and uh to be clear when we talk about math in relation to software development um there are a lot of different levels of math there are probably different things that you've been exposed to uh arithmetic is something that maybe you have bad memories of from elementary school that you, i promise you you never have to worry about because you can always make the computer do it for you pretty easily the little calculator programs that come up handle all your arithmetic um, algebra is something that I think I've talked to a lot of students who assume that because they had troubles in algebra, they're not going to be able to be software developers. And I have to reassure them that for any of the things we've talked about so far, that's not true. Uh, at the same time, there are things where algebra and sort of college level math past that do get to be important. Those are somewhat niche topics. In, in programming, but I guess we can talk about some of those now and differentiate those from the ones that are not math focused at all. Right. I think if you're going to get into any sort of um, lower level drawing type things where you want to create shapes and stuff like that, trigonometry is uh, and geometry is certainly something that you would want to have, you know, a basic understanding of. Um, in many ways, a lot of the modern platforms abstract a lot of that away from you. So rather than having to know the math behind drawing a circle, you can just simply ask the thing that you're using to draw you a circle and it will, and you say, I want a circle that's a radius of 10 pixels or whatever, and it'll just do it for you. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, even that kind of stuff in many modern environments is abstracted away from you. Um, and you can, you can have, you can have access to it at a, at a level that is 
simpler, where you just say, make me a circle or whatever. Uh, but if you do want to get into the actual drawing itself of that kind of stuff, then having those sort of, um, those uh, those concepts at least relatively well understood is going to be useful. And would that be for something like uh, video game programming, are you thinking? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can actually do it on iOS. Uh, at, in my class at Lambda School, we do have a lesson on basic view drawing to show them how to do it kind of manually. Okay. Um, and we do involve those functions to draw things, um, uh, to draw out shapes and stuff. Are there particular kinds of applications where you really would be concerned with uh, interacting at that level? Um, yeah, it just depends on. So, I mean, there's there's built in uh, there's some built in choices for you, uh, but they're fairly limiting. So, if you want to draw things that are not sort of the standard collection of shapes that are available, oh, okay. then then you'd want to be able to drop down a layer to to draw your own stuff. Um, uh, something that's that's going to be pretty cool with SwiftUI, which is the sort of a new way to make interfaces on iOS anyway, is that they, they've expanded the collection of sort of raw shapes that you can draw very easily with SwiftUI. So I think that that'll actually that'll be good. That it's kind of democratizing that kind of drawing even more in the new version that we will be hopefully using in the next couple of years. Um, but but anyway. Basically, if you want to go sort of outside the box, as it were, right, and draw shapes that are not kind of part of the standard set of shapes that they give you, you can drop down a layer and do that. Um, but again, that's not necessarily super common, but it's still a thing. And there are certainly times uh, and cases where uh, I need to be able to do certain things. Uh, maybe it's not drawing. Maybe it's animation, right? I want to perform a certain kind of animation, and it and I need to understand how to translate a... Uh, a shape on the screen to a different location, or I want to change its size, or whatever. Again, I'm speak. I'm going to speak from iOS because that's what I know. Uh, there are tools that you can use um, to APIs that you can use to to make those um, relatively straightforward. But if you want to do something that's not one of the few things that they give you, then again, you have to be able to kind of uh, understand um, how to move things around and change their size and and transform them. Um, so. I guess my point is that uh, probably more than likely, if we're talking about at least the front end, um, if you want to if you want to perform various kinds of things, drawing shapes, animating stuff, in many cases you're going to have tools available to you in the in the platform you're working on that automate or at least uh, make available in an easy way, you know, to do those things. Um, but uh, it's likely that there are also sort of lower level um, uh, systems in place that let you draw those things yourself if you'd like. And there are times I have encountered times in my career where that has been necessary because what we're trying to do is just not standard. And so I need to be able to to do that. Um, it's not super often, right? So I don't, it's not like I have to have like a, a, a constant ready knowledge of all these ideas every day. Sure. Um, I think some people think that, that programming is like, you have to be sort of a math whiz ev all day, every day of your career. And that's definitely that's not, not true. That's not true at all. Yeah. Um, but it, but I don't want to sort of hand wave away the idea that there is no math involved in programming. It's it's that's definitely not true. It, it is it occasionally can get kind of math heavy. I guess I guess is my point. Once for front end stuff, especially if you're working with making different kinds of shapes or animations, then I think the web works the same way. That there are tools available in whether in CSS or JavaScript to uh, get you a lot of the way there. They're kind of the most common use cases. And then if you want to do something sort of off the beaten path, then yeah, the, the further away from the standards that are given that you go, the more 
of that kind of high school physics slash trigonometry sort of sort of knowledge that you'll have to either recall or more likely look up again and 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 puzzle out. Right, and then for other other parts, uh, certainly like the uh, the data science program that that we run at Lambda School, uh, they they recommend you having uh, having taken calculus college level calculus before okay. you join the course and i bet statistics um, I, is pretty useful for that discipline yep also. the statistics are both yeah so i don't i've you know i'm, I'm not a data scientist so i don't exactly know how those things i mean this is kind of obvious but like how uh calculus is exactly involved in some of those things mm-hmm. but they do recommend it as a prerequisite for That's joining the interesting. course i'd be curious to hear in a future episode what the direct applications of calculus in that kind of program are yeah, I, I I thought that it was interesting when I saw that as a prereq, and I I haven't yet talked to people that run it to see why, but I can I can do a little research and come back on an, on a future episode. All right. to talk about Stay that. tuned. Um, yeah. Uh, so so I guess the point is that uh, depending on this on the platform that you choose um, and the genre of programming that you choose, math could be either a bigger or smaller portion of your day um, or of your general programming life. Um, but uh, the good news is. Um, it's pretty rare that you're going to be building software where all day, every day, you're going to be heavily, heavily math focused. I mean, if you work on the Large Hadron Collider and the software that runs <laughs> that thing, you're probably going to be using math and physics constantly. Right. If, if you're working on one of those things and you're listening to this show, uh, give us a call because <laughs> we'd be interested to know how you found us. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in other kinds of applications, it's, it's certainly not as big of a focus. If we could drop back and, and talk a little bit more about data science and machine learning, could, uh, would you say those two are pretty closely connected terms? First off, yes, uh, I would. I, again, I'm going to speak from a, a from a position of relative ignorance. Yeah, we're at the edges of our expertise here, though. <laughs> that I don't know a ton about sort of the the specific field of data science as a discipline and exactly what's involved there. But I, I would say that machine learning and data science are are at least um, uh, in the same ballpark and and probably roughly analogous. Um, I'm sure if we had uh, the the program manager of um, of the data science program on the podcast right now, he'd be like, "Well, maybe, yeah, but right. like he'd probably have he probably have some yeah buts in there um, to to clarify because certainly he knows much better than than I do. Um, but uh, but I would say broadly speaking that they are um, certainly related. Um, and what we mean by what we should clarify what we mean by machine learning. It's the idea that a computer can be given um, data and instruction and then can actually, uh, through successive uh, uses of that code and the and processing of that data, can actually learn new skills. I, I, it's, I, I'm not even I'm not even well versed enough to be able to give a plain English description of it, I think very well, but but I, I think broadly speaking, that's kind of the 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 very broad idea behind it, which is, sort of genetic algorithms and stuff where they can they can actually learn over time and become better algorithms through the use of of data that they process um but it is important to kind of caveat that by saying we don't mean uh a sentient computer that can think for itself and right. has it's intuition the, it, right. not, it's nothing not, like that. it's not lieutenant data from star trek it's no it's something different and we had mentioned before the idea of SQL as the way of interacting with a database. And um, my first use of that kind of technology was to answer straightforward questions of the kind that uh, 
if I had a long enough time and I had all the data in front of me, I could like just print out a giant pile of, of sheets of paper with all of my database information on it. And I could kind of look things up myself. You know, if I want to find out all of the t-shirts that cost less than $18, I can just go through the table and it would take me a very long time and it'd be awfully dull, but I could do it. Whereas machine learning, you still need a bunch of data from somewhere, but then it, it gets fed into some kind of software that Ben and I don't understand very well to answer more subtle questions that would be harder to, to formulate, like uh, what do we think are the percentage chances that the person who just logged on really wants to buy a shirt that costs less than $18? Yeah, so it can actually make predictions, which I think is is interesting. And those predictions have a confidence level that that explain uh, this is likely to happen or this is not very likely to happen. And and the goal of machine learning in in some aspects is to be able to, with a collection of data and a an algorithm, to be able to then say, okay, based on a new piece of data that just came in, uh, can we then predict? some outcome using the new piece of data we just got and all its other data that is historical about this thing like you said you know what how, what's the likelihood of a of a person visiting the website to buy a t-shirt um, if you have enough data you can make a prediction about that the prediction of course could be more confident or less confident but but you can actually make a prediction about that and that's that's really kind of i think where a lot of the machine learning that that's happening right now that's where we're focused uh, on because to businesses that's really interesting and uh, and potentially useful to them because if they can use those predictions to then guide where they spend money on uh, on their business they could potentially you know make more money they can make more profit and be more successful as a company so that's that's really why uh, that field is so hot right now is that business I think industry has has capped has 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 learned that this technology can be used in that way. Um, it's one of the things you can do. And, and that's, I think, a, a big reason why um, that has become super popular as a sort of genre of programming, in addition to all the other cool stuff you can do with data, data science. Right, and, which there's a, a, a bunch of cool stuff, like the idea of uh, just taking a picture. This is probably something that human brains have evolved for possibly better than anything else, to just take visual information like what's in a picture and say what it is. You know, every, everybody pretty much can look at a picture of a face and start saying things, one, that there's a face there, and two, about how old the person is and what gender probably. And a lot of things that computers have really, really hard times doing. Right. So like Snapchat, for example, the, mm -hmm. the app Snapchat that you can you can apply a filter to your own face yeah. and you can do it live uh, as you move your face around in, uh, in the camera view. That is essentially doing face recognition. It's, de it's determining that you have there's a face in the view and it's finding your your mouth and your nose and your eyes and, and all the different facial features. And it's and then very it's recent that that technology has been possible yeah. at all. And it's grafting then, you know, a silly sort of mask or something on top, a digital, digital mask or something like that on top of your own face. And it's doing that through, that's machine learning. That's basically, that's, that's in, in a sense, that is, um, it's facial recognition and then tracking of your face. Um, so it had to be taught 
how to recognize a face. And, and I remember by, by teaching, I think generally the way that's done is it's just fed basically a bunch of images and told that has a face that does not have a face. This has a face. This does not have a face. And then the learning that happens, actually, I had uh, a chance to go to a lecture on that at the Orlando developers uh, meetup a couple of years ago. And when they looked at the sort of the code that was generated, I guess, or into the algorithm that the, the, the computer decided upon, it was not at all the way any of us would think about how do you know it's a face? It was stuff like, how quickly does shadow transition into not shadow as I move across this? And just weird, like mathematical properties of the, of the data that I, I don't know. It's just, it's a face. That's all I know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. What I find really interesting about that kind of thing is that in 2006, probably 2007, somewhere around there when I was in college, uh, I, we were, a, a student presented about, uh, about face recognition at, and the state of the art at the time. And, and the school I went to was doing some research on it. And so this was research actually from, from, you know, graduate students and professors at the university about, about face recognition. And it was like a, a static photo of a, of a bunch of students standing in front of a building. Um, and it was like, how many of their faces can the computer identify? So I put little squares over all the faces. And it found like, let's, I don't remember the number, but let's say it was like three quarters of the faces in the group were found. But, and so it was pretty good. But then also it found like a face in the column on the building behind it. Right. And like it was, it was also pretty, right. uh, it found a lot of false positives. Um, and I remember like, they were like, yeah, this is, this is the state of the art on face recognition, taking a static, a single static photo and feeding it into the algorithm and having it find faces that it only took, you know, a certain short amount of time. And, and like you compare that with, I can open my, my portable pocket computer pointed at my face. That is not a photograph. It's a live video of my face and my, the camera can find my face and then digitally graft, you know, a silly mask on top of it and then as i move my face around and open my mouth and stick my tongue out it can actually track all those things and then make changes and like and it's just funny you know in the in what uh like let's say 10 12 years between what i just talked about and now the the amount of the, the pacing there is is insane that we've gone from like it only takes two minutes to find 10 faces in a static photograph and now it can do live video tracking of your face and at your the same time that means that here in 2020 computers have caught up to a human baby the instant its eyes are able to focus right yes. because you you bring a baby in to see its mother for the first time in the hospital and if if you know it can like see that far away then it'll lock in and make eye contact and that's that's where computers have gotten up to finally now right you know pretty, I, pretty insane I, I heard another great uh, i just want to tell you this one about machine learning uh, there's a, a program that was supposed to be used to generate text that you can feed in a huge corpus of whether it's poems and then it'll try to write poetry or you know scientific papers it'll try to like put the words together to make scientific papers. somebody had the idea of taking uh, completed chess games which you can represent with with text, you know, if you've seen the, like the Robert Downey Sherlock Holmes movie that will say, you know, KA2 and that kind of thing to say, uh -huh, move this yeah. piece to that square and um, fed this program text strings representing chess. And then it could sort of play chess, even though it was never programmed with the rules of chess or even the idea that it was dealing with a game of chess. It just knew these strings of characters. And so you could tell it, here's my first move. And it would say, all right, based on all of these strings of, of data that I've seen before, probably the next thing that ought to happen is this string of characters. And then you could go back and forth and just in this pure 
text manipulation and in text recognition way, it could play a not very good but not horrible game of chess. Right. And if you think about it, that's basically how you learn how to play chess. I mean, the one advantage you have as a human is that someone could explain the rules to you. But but once the rules are explained, all the rest of being a good chess player is playing a bunch of chess and then knowing all of the different permutations and parameters around this happens and this happens, this happens, this happens. And you and you sort of you, you want to guide the game to a point where we end up in a state that is I win. Right. That's 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 how you you, you win at chess. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned this maybe last time we were, we recorded, but there's an episode of the Try Guys on YouTube of, of the four of them playing a chess master. Yeah, he's he's blindfolded. Right. They can they can see each of their individual boards, and they're playing. He's playing four games at once, and he's blindfolded, and he beat all but one of them. The one one person they ended up in a tie, um, which I feel like is pretty even yeah. even well for done. a. Even for a blindfolded, <laughs> playing for it at a time chess master against a, a layman, it's pretty good for the layman to get to a tie. Um, but uh, but but shocking that he, that he was able to do that, and it's, and it's because in part he he did all of the work you just described in his head over the last however many years of learning how to play chess is is sort of having that that built up like catalog of all of the moves that you can make and 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 that kind of thing. It's just the computer can do it. They can it can learn it way faster because it can read in you know six thousand chess games in in a second and then process it. Pretty impressive. Um, so if if these kinds of of, of problems are interesting to you, um, then maybe data science is a good way to go uh, because it's it's certainly a, a very much a burgeoning field and is is very much in demand. And if you have the skills, um, I've I've noticed that that. Uh, um, Due to the the what we see as like hiring numbers for for graduates of our program, they will pay very handsomely. So I think I think data science is probably one of the highest paid uh, genres of computer programming that, that probably exists in the current marketplace. Um, not that that should be your only goal, but uh, it's worth you know, knowing about though. It's worth knowing about, yeah, for sure. And besides being a, a discipline that answers particular problems, are there specific uh, programming languages that are more associated with with that discipline? Uh, so at Lambda School, we teach Python um, as the the primary language for for doing data science. I I'm gonna say that uh, I can recommend Python because I know that we that's what we teach. What other program language programming languages are used? I have no idea. I actually I don't. I don't know what's common there. Maybe R in some respects because it's very statistics focused. Yeah, but that's just a guess. I, I don't I don't actually know. Yeah, I, I imagine you'd probably end up picking up up R. And again, we're speaking from uh, positions of a fair amount of ignorance on this. I do know that Python is the the king of the hill in data science and has been for for a while. Yeah. Do you know why I'm not a sort of I'm not a Python programmer? Do you know why that is? What what aspects of the language make it? I I think a Good lot of the scientific community picked up on Python pretty early, and so there are okay. a lot of um, numerical methods, which is a, a, a kind of programming slash math term for um, solving a large class of um, equations very quickly. Python has has a facility with that that other languages don't. Got it. Okay, yeah. So some of these things, I think, are you know they're very much on purpose, and sometimes they're just sort of historical that's what people chose, and yeah, yeah <laughs> that's what happens. And well, that's the end of this episode. We certainly have a long and growing list of prior episodes that uh, the listeners can access. And Ben, if people would like to do that, tell them where can they go, what can they do. 
So all of the great stuff about our podcast is available on our website at mvc.fm, where you can listen to all of our past shows and learn how to subscribe. We're basically available everywhere podcasts are sold. So if you have a favorite podcast app or a location you'd like to listen, uh, we're probably there. We're even on Spotify, so check us out there. Um, if you use iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app to listen to our show, a rating and review there would really help us out. And lastly, if you'd like to send feedback or suggestions for new episodes, we're available on Twitter at NBC Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.